It doesn't say when God heard their words. It says when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. Welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, your Word is truth. It is flawless. It is perfect in every word in the entirety of the Bible. It is true, and it is living, and it is effectual. It is Holy Spirit, breathe, give you praise, dear Lord, this evening, for this your holy word. I ask, dear Lord, that you would use it in our hearts as we think about the things that are said in uh, the prophet Jonah. I pray, dear Lord, that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our ears, affect our minds and our emotions and that place where we make choices so that we might be godly people. If there are anyone who listens to this who's not a Christian, would uh, be touched in that place where the greatest decision is made to see Jesus Christ as Lord and to bow the knee to him as such. I ask these things in his precious and holy name. Amen. Previously, uh, in our last podcast, we looked at Jonah the conflicted prophet. Today uh, is episode 57 in the Jonah series from Not I But Christ. Um... And the Jonah is, we're going to see Jonah as the captivating prophet. From the conflicted prophet to, prophet to the contrite prophet to the captivating prophet. Prophet. Already a prophet who had part in saving Israel by prophesying the word of the Lord to a wicked king, Jeroboam the son of Joash, according to 2 Kings 14, 25-27, he became conflicted as a prophet, not so much because of fear, which we all have fear, but he did not want to see the destruction of Israel by the hand of Assyrians, and uh, it was prejudice. There are those of us today who love our country, America, or at least the America that used to be in bygone days as we stood against the evils of the Kaiser and Adolf Hitler, and others, but have also continually corrupted, which has been the plight of all nations as they rise and fall through success and pride. Much like Peter, Jonah, who did not fully understand the plan that would send the Lord Jesus to the cross, Jonah also tried subverting God's plan to save Nineveh. The one man, the one main difference of course, was that Jesus was Lord and completely innocent of all wrongdoing, where Israel was guilty and their destruction and captivity would not come for another hundred years. Um, 
But the similarity of subverting God's plan, well, that was much the same in the lives of these two men. In chapter 3, it opens much like chapter 1. Verse 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Very importantly, we are told again that the word which Jonah was to speak was not his own, but the word of the Lord. Just as the ship's crew was converted by the hearing of Jonah's God, even so the greatest story of the conversion of a foreign city, not the conversion of some Jews, which is most common in the Old Testament, but the conversion of many Gentiles. As it always is and must be, it is the word of the Lord that converts the sinner's dead and evil heart. Should I say that again? It is always the word of the Lord that converts the sinner's dead and evil heart. Jeremiah tells us the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Rhetorical question. Answer, no one can know really the extent of the wickedness of their own heart. And a matter of fact, we're mostly deceived by who we are. First, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, who in turn proclaimed it to the people. No preacher has any right to his own interpretation about anything in the Word of God. There is always one and only one interpretation in matters concerning all of the Word of God, and that is what God means by what God has written or said. As well as saved and believing Christian people, preachers, as preachers, we are bound by what God means by what He has said. I mean, I can't say this enough. I'm going to use this word, I hate the phrase, quote, that's your interpretation, end quote. To which I would say, quote, if it is my interpretation, it must fall to the ground and become worthless. Because who am I? I'm nobody. It's not a matter of me or what I think that matters. It's not. So, well, then what are you talking about when you, when you explain the word of God? I'm explaining... Uh, by the homework done, the study put into it, understanding the construction of the words, understanding what construction turns out in anyone who's writing, who writes well, who's not being confusing, and excuse me, but God did not make the word of God confusing, even though it may be very difficult to understand, but then the weakness is in us. Some sinfulness, some blindsidedness, some presumption, you know, a whole lot of things can go into our misinterpreting or misunderstanding what God has said. But there is no problem with what God has written. But if what I say is accurate to what God has written, then it is not my interpretation. Quite frankly, I have no right to any interpretation. No one does. For the context of our present text, verse 1 says this, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Why a second time? Because he had broken, he had to be broken 
to his own will and his own ways and his own prejudices. He had to be broken of sin. He had to speak according to the words God would place in his mouth. Nothing else would do. And he had to be willing to do it. Quite frankly, it was, it was all uh, too much for him. He was too conflicted in his soul. And he picked up and he ran. And then after cha- chapter 2, uh, taking a short ride on a big fish and being broken in that state, and he, really, he wasn't going to get away with it. He still goes out. He does what he has to do. There's a reluctance, and we will see that in chapter 4. I'm sure you've, if you've read it, you're familiar. And then in verse 2, we, we further read, though, quote, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Now, he told them he was going to destroy them in chapter 1, and uh, he wasn't happy with them. Sin had come up. And he wanted the prophet to go. And that's all we're told in chapter 1 here. He tells him, I'm going to give you the proclamation. And what's going to come out of your mouth had better be what I have just told you to say. And he's got the idea that might be a good idea to do it that way. It doesn't get more clear than this. Proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So we have no authority to change the message. Has the message been changed? That's that's the question now I want to ask. Well, if you read sermons preached just during the Great Awakening, that time in America's history when revival hit our shores and scores of people came to the transforming knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, when salvation was measured by a changed life and not by walking an aisle or signing a card, unless people were interviewed and mature people were able to assess what uh, at least seemed to be a good-sounding understanding and, and watch a righteous walk, people were not permitted to partake of the Lord's table. Things have changed in many ways in many churches during the 19th and 20th, now 21st centuries. But the message, the message changed to a good extent. I'll talk about it a little bit. So Jonah rose, chapter two ended, chapter two ended with Jonah being vomited up and spewed out of the big fish. And we might picture him laying, sitting, kneeling, I don't know. What I do know is he had to get up, arise, and go to what has been commissioned and commanded to do by Almighty God. Jonah was sent to a great city, probably about 60 miles long. Verse 3, so Jonah rose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days journey. So at 20 miles a day, that's 60 miles. Now here's the message in verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, for 40 days... Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now he cried out. He, he, he cried out. It's, I want to focus on that term because it's going to come up again. The greatest sermon preached during the Great Awakening is and right now we're just we're obviously focusing on Jonah's crying out a message. But the greatest sermon during the Great Awakening, as history is recorded, 
uh, which lit a fire in the souls of scores of people during those days, was preached on July 8, 1741, by theologian Jonathan Edwards entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God at a congregational church in Enfield, Connecticut. As the title states, it is not about warm fuzzies. It's not about the love of God primarily. If you, if you read it, you'll see that. However, the love of God shines all the more brightly after we first come to understand that God is a consuming fire. The greatest revival among Gentiles that the Old Testament records came from the message that said, quote, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I'm asking, has the message changed? Well, if you compare the Great Awakening with the message of Jonah, it hadn't changed at all. Old Testament, new, uh, well, since the the Great Awakening took place in the... the, uh, 1700s, you know, that, that's 1700 years after Christ's death on the cross, and the message stays the same as 700 years before when Jonah is preaching to Nineveh. Now, try to sell sin is in the hands of an angry God, or yet 40 days and you will be overthrown. You know, try to sell that to a current day evangelist who needs, you know, some pat way to deliver. Uh, a gospel message, uh, sell it to someone in the last 150 years, if you could speak to people like right now, you know, it would be a, it would be a hard sell. I'm telling you, that's a hard sell today. Uh, try to sell them on yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Or turn from your wicked ways and you will, or you will spend eternity in hell. Yeah, try to try to sell that today. You know <clears throat> that what I, I'm not changing the story of Nineveh here. I'm not changing the story of Jonah here. I'm just reading exactly as it has been record, recorded all these centuries. You know, and what the outcome of the message was in verse 5 is then the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. What, what, wait a minute, what's the message? Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now you're going to look and you're going to, people are going to look at this and they're going to go, yeah, well, was it real? Well, we're going to find out it's, it's real. It's real to these people that swayed off God's judgment for 100 years. You know what? If judge, God didn't judge these people, then God was lying. If these people weren't evil, then God was lying. If these people needed to repent, then God's not telling the truth. I mean, it was either real or that you're gonna have, we need to have a problem with God. I don't have a problem with God. I hope everyone who's listening to this does not have a problem with God. That's the last thing I'd be shooting for. I'm shooting for just the opposite. We should, we should be exalting, praising, elevating God to where he belongs. Now, did you get what, what's being said just now? The people of Nineveh believed in God. Not a God, not a small G-O-D, no, a capital G-O-D, or the word in Hebrew, Elohim. The strong, faithful one of Israel. Israel's God, the Hebrew God. The people of Nineveh believed in the Hebrew God. They didn't go on believing in false gods. They didn't, they st- 
stopped if they were atheists. They believed in the God of Israel. What did they believe? Well, they believed that destruction or doom was headed their way, and they needed to do something about it. They needed to change. How do I know that? Well, it says, quote, they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. First, they called. They thought it serious enough that everyone needed to be involved. This wasn't just some private belief. This wasn't like, you know, I got, I could, I'm not going to speak my mind or get involved. You know, this is destruction was coming to some and, 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 and all. Destruction was coming. And everybody would feel the full weight of God's judgment. It's obvious in this. From the, from the greatest to the least, they were just all involved. Second, they put on sackcloth. You know, they weren't dressing to the T, you know, back in the 40s. You know. they, they, they weren't going to show off who they were, their influence, their wealth. They were, they were taking the place of a pauper who had no control over anything or anybody. They're putting on sackcloth. Or as I putting on a, a potato sack. Okay? Nineveh was going to be overthrown, the same word used for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The most spoken of story in all the Old Testament. Now it may have been faint, maybe, you know, but it was history to these people. Whether they believed it or not, there is that awareness of things that happen, you know, the sinking of the Titanic, you know, that's like we weren't there, we didn't see it. Do you believe it? Even if they didn't raise it up, you know, in, in recent history. It went down. We get it. It was a terrible. And this was more relevant to them than the hearing about the fall of Rome for us. You know what I'm saying? This was hard. And who put on the sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them? You are, you know, there are just some things in life that immediately equalize all people. It really does. No one goes into the ground at death any different than anyone else. No one gets pushed out of the hospital room, you know, but feet first. We all get buried and we go where God wants us to go, and we have absolutely no say in the matter. You know, our money can't help us, our position in life, what we know, or who we know, unless, of course, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us consider carefully the next part clearly, verse 6. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. In this present world, the seat of authority could also be called the seat of pride. This is where audacity insensitivity, self-centeredness, evil, selfishness, and violence grow like weeds. Violence, you know, does that really grow in America? Well, maybe the person standing there, sitting there, isn't pulling out a knife or a gun, but they make decisions knowing full well it's not going to go well with other people. It's violence. If it's the man's signing the decree, or the man stabbing the knife, 
It all amounts to the same thing before God. What did this man do by the grace of God? Make no mistake about God's grace in this story. He rose from his throne. Let me say that again. He rose from his throne. In those days, when a man spoke from his throne, he spoke from the seat of authority. Sitting on the throne, you don't want to mess with this man. I mean, you don't want to mess with him anyway. But when he's sitting on the throne, not good. This man left his place of authority. He left it behind, being rocked to his core. He acted like every other, every other person. Make no mistake. This is like learning that a meteor was coming to earth, which upon arrival, all will die from the least to the greatest. Everybody's dead on this thing. And the king heard the message and believed it just like everybody else. This is, this is saying something when you're talking about a king. He laid aside his robe. He didn't just get up from his throne. He, he left the thing that really marked him personally, you know. It was his throne. It's, it's his robe, though. You know, something about clothes, you know, to make the man, so it said. It's like the scholar taking off his robe, or the priest, his collar, or the judge, you know, his, his vestments, and, and, and so on. You know, it's all about who we are and how we dress to show who we are that's taken off by the king. These things lose all their weight when destruction approaches. It's superfluous. It becomes what it really is. And that's not to say that men aren't given authority by God. It is, and it's real authority. Uh, Is it usually abused? Well, yeah, most of the time. He also covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. Just like all the other people. He's dressed just like them now. Ashes are what's left when something has been reduced to nothing. You know, that, that's what it is. Ashes are what's left when something has been reduced to nothing. Nothing but ashes. These people, including the king, were reduced to nothing in their own eyes because of the words of Jonah, the Jonah that spoke. Jonah, this, this, this little Hebrew. I don't know how little he was. You know, these are big, fierce people. These are armored. These are men with knives and guns and uh, knives and swords and, and, you know, shields and chariots and horses and all of this. For the day, they're, they're just armored to the gill. And all we have from Jonah is in 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. You know, it seems ridiculous, doesn't it? It seems ridiculous. I'm trying to contextualize you know, Sodom and Gomorrah and all the, the facts that really are surrounding these things. But when you just read the words and you realize who these people were, you see pictures. I mean, it was a dynamic looking city and off the river and pretty buildings, I'm sure. They had wealth. So we then go from the proclamation of the prophet, prophet whose proclamation has hit the people like an anvil to the proclamation of a humble king. So this guy's affected, and now this king is not standing before a superior army, although it could be destruction could come that way. He's, however, standing before the Almighty, and he's come to realize it. You know, that in itself is a grace. That's a big grace. And God has a way of making his presence known. In every generation, since Adam, you know, it's Cain or Abel, he made himself himself known. 
And our land has not seen such a thing happen for centuries so far as revival is concerned. So we're not used to it. But all the people in Nineveh, they got it. We're told in verse 7, he issued a proclamation and it said, quote, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. So this is coming from the king and all the nobles are in agreement. This is like a country. This is a city-wide thing. Understanding. They're acting. All together. This is like one voice. You know, it's like everybody's cried out, crucify him, crucifying, meaning Jesus. And they're crying out. Not that way, though. Essentially, his decree told the people to do what they were already doing. We don't get from the text that the people responded to the king. No, first we learn that the people believed in Elohim. They believed in the God of the Hebrews. And then when it reached the king, then he makes this proclamation. It is only after we are told the king has become humbled and did what they already were doing, he didn't want them to eat or drink. Furthermore, in verse 8, he goes on and says, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. I mean, he's just covering everything that's living. You know what I'm saying? He's, he's covering all the bases. And let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from the wicked way, his wicked way, and from the violence which is in his hands. It becomes singular act. It's a group thing because they're all involved, but each and every one is involved. This is to say that people and their animals were now informed by the king to be covered with humility and to call on God earnestly. The word earnestly is kozka, which, which means basically strength of force and violence, something that these folks understood. This is the way they were meant to cry out. The way they lived their lives in a violent manner, even though it's being turned in a completely different direction, these people are, are called to use that in a good way. And so they, they, they were to cry out to the Elohim of Israel with rigor. You know that word, rigor? It's, it's, it's got passion in it. It's, 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 it's serious. You know, it's not the, the prayer at the table. Thank you, Lord, for these thy gifts we are about to receive. And that can be good. That's greatest if it's meant from the heart, that there's really appreciation for what God has done. This is a cry. This is, oh God, save us from ourselves. Forgive us for all our wickedness. The, the wickedness we've buried in our hearts, the evil that we've done to our enemies. And they can see it, you know, person to person. I mean, everything that conscience was silenced. When conscience was silenced, but it was there. You know, as it took time, and it does in every person. And you just absorb the culture that's around you, but deep down you know it's wrong. Like a person I told a long time ago, we were going back and forth about abortion. And I, you know, he pulls this poem out of his wallet, and he starts to read it, and he just crushed it when he found out his girlfriend had killed his child. You know, he was still for women's rights, but, you know, he just, he knew. And he told me he knew it was wrong. You know, the thing that makes prayers effective is actually the words that follow from the king. But were already present in the, in the people, and it's this, quote, 
that each may turn from his wicked way. That each, each and every person, not just the a whole, no, each and every person must turn from his wicked way. This is repentance. This is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, the apostles of the early church, and of every revival in history has been a gospel of repentance. Let us be clear. These people were being repentant. This isn't like some superfluous faith in some unseen Jesus or Jesus that isn't Jesus by an accurate account of the Word of God. This is the Jesus of, not the Jesus of an imagination. This is repentant of a God who's a consuming fire. This is a God who destroyed Egypt. I mean, just annihilated a country. Don't think that wasn't still history. We understand history from thousands of years ago. They got it from hundreds, okay? This is believing in the reality If it is believing at all, it is always repentant. Belief and faith is always repentant if it's real. And if it's not repentant, it's not real. Thus the story of the Great Awakening, Pentecost, that transformed wayward people into a community where everyone did not regard what they owned, but they gave it away. Right? Acts chapter 3. You see it in 2 and 3 and 4. You see this understanding that people's, even their property, that they can consider it their own, but they gave it to others who are in greater need. They were transformed. It's not like the people live. People don't live like that. That's not worldliness. To become so giving and repentant and sorrowful for sin. I mean, let's not miss this. The end of the proclamation by the king is, and from the violence which is in his hands. Singular. The Ninevites, if nothing else, were violent people. Repentance would have meant nothing if it did not include turning from their violence and their violent ways. You know, America today has become a violent nation. It's nothing like the the nation as it was when I was a kid. And before me. Now, there's always been problem. There's always been sin. But cultures change. I mean, if you spend time in Judge chapter 2, and if you have any respect for the Word of God, you have to see that people get worse. You know, the, the judges came, they made proclamations like prophets, they told the people what to do, and God, you know, He, he forgave them, and he, he gave them up, the chastising up, and then the per- people, when the, the things got lighter, they turned and they went back to their old ways. And every exceeding generation will do that because only sinners are born to to Adam's race. You have to be converted. You have to repent. You have to believe. You have to turn from your wicked ways in order to turn from that way of evil. Now the final verse, the final word from the king is in verse 9. So, quote, who knows God may turn from relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Who knows? Yeah, I really love that. Who knows? Maybe God may turn and relent, withdraw his burning anger 
so that we will not perish. You got to love it. Who knows? Isn't that something? These people were like all sinners who truly become aware of the extent of their sinfulness. They really were. They, you get broken to like you don't even know what you know anymore. You, you realize what you don't know. I mean, I, I don't know God is what the king is saying. I mean, I don't know what this God's going to do. I mean, he's, he's like, he's fearful of this God. I think the testimony of Duncan Campbell, who experienced true revival, not a man-made revival, but, but when the Spirit of God descends upon people and they cry out. He tells the story, you can look at it on the revival on the Isle of Lewis on YouTube. At three o'clock in the morning, these people are crying out. He's making his way to the Pope. And uh, the place is filling up. You know, all these people are coming from who knows where. To, he didn't even know where. 200 people, I think, or so, came from a dance, you know, and, and he, he tries to get into the pulpit, and this one woman, you know, she's, she's on the floor, she's by the pulpit, and, and she's so moved by the Spirit of God, and this is in 1939 in Wales on the Isle of Lewis, and, 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 and as she cries, he hears her say, is there mercy for me? Is there mercy for me? Is there mercy for me? I've never been in a service. I mean, I felt it in my own heart when I went into the bedroom after listening to Billy Graham on TV. And I was just covered with the, the awareness of my sin and I was broken and I was repentant and I was sorry. And I just, I had to cry out to God. I wasn't saying, is there mercy for me out loud? I, I was definitely saying that in my heart. But I've never been to a meeting at a church where this kind of, I mean, exacerbated emotion took place. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm, not, I'm talking about some fanciful, fake emotionalism that takes place in churches. I'm talking about this is the real thing. Yeah, you know the real thing? People are crushed under the weight of their sins. I mean, I've seen these things go on back in the, in the early, early 70s, charismatic churches and things that went on. I never saw anything like this. I never even seen anybody ever in one of those meetings cry out about sin. This kind of revival is the kind where it's people, it's not come to Jesus and he'll make your life better. It's not believe in the love of God. It's not God has a, 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 a wonderful life planned out for you, for your, for your, in your life. No, no, this is change, repent, humble yourself to being nothing or to, the city's going to be destroyed. That's the message. To be clear. And if there's no way of avoiding this message because that one line is all there is. That's the message. You know, at the time of the tribulation, that will transform the world and make it ready for the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it'll be much like a pre-flood earth. It's not going to be like anything like we understand it now. Probably canopy of water again, oxygen level really high, People genetically changed, and also the conditions on the earth, they can live a thousand years. It, it's, it'll be different. But as it's made that way for Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, to rule, he's going to rule with a rod of iron. People will not be willing, even during that tribulation period, before that transformation takes place, they will not be willing to repent. You know, is there any wonder why? With the last 
200 years or more preaching only the love of God that anyone would be willing to repent. When they've turned with hatred you know, towards this kind of preaching that goes on that talks about the love of Jesus with no fear of God, no repentance from sin, or little. Of course there are some good churches, but broad and wide is the way that leads to destruction, and most of those churches, if they be Christian, quote-unquote, they're not preaching repentance, they're preaching the love of God. Chapter 10 concludes by saying in verse 10, quote, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. When God saw their deeds, it doesn't say when God heard their words. It says when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, of course, in the minds of some people, and I've heard it uh, myself even, for the phrase, then God relented, or repented, some would take that, and that's not the case, is a problem. Well, God changed his mind. I mean, how can God change his mind? You know, they think like they're saying something. Like, you're talking about God, first of all, uh, slow that buggy down, um, Enter into a place of respect for the Almighty before you start throwing accusations around. That's number one. For them, I would imagine the Bible, all the Bible is a problem, whether they state it or not. But the word relented is nakham. Nakham, to be sorry. Actually, to console oneself. It can mean move to pity have compassion, and, or suffer grief for others. It can also mean comfort oneself, ease oneself, get this, by taking vengeance. By taking vengeance. You know, the vengeance that God always took. The vengeance that God took in a moment in time to comfort himself. And in order to forgive what the vengeance calls for was placed upon his son. You know, it's a primitive root, the word relented properly to sigh. You know, when you sigh, oh. you know, it's like, only in this case, it's, it's a relief for the people. It's a sigh for the son. It's a sigh for the sun. One of the shortest, one of the shortest verses, verses, it's actually two that I've found in the Bible that are two words. Luke 19, 41 and to 44, we read these words. When he approached Jerusalem, uh, he saw the city and wept over it. Actually, in John eleven thirty five, it says Jesus wept. Yes, Jesus was capable of weeping. And then again in Luke nineteen forty one to forty four, it says, "When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and 
wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day even the things which make for peace. You know the day when he comes riding on the colt of a donkey. If you had known on in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now you have been they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And of course, we're talking about Titus coming with the Roman army to destroy Israel. The third chapter of Jonah is a sentence of death upon the inhabitants of the great city Nineveh and of their revival because they repented. To properly understand the full character of God as revealed in his holy word, let us look at Ezekiel 33, 10-12. Ezekiel 33, 10-12 says this, quote, Now, as for you, son of man, and he's talking to Ezekiel, say to the house of Israel, this is what you have said. Quote, and this is what the people were saying, Surely our offenses and our sins are upon us, and we are rotting away in them. How can we survive? Say to them, the Lord then says, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure at all in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Now, when people talk about God's a consuming fire and the wrath of God and the anger of God, some people want to say, you know, it's just God's separating himself from people. It's not. It's the anger and the wrath of God. We have to take this side of God as an equal side to the fact that he's righteous and holy and he doesn't permit sin. He judges it. And his judgment is what comes on it, not his lack of judgment. But at the exact same time, God says, I take no pleasure at all in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Now, some people will be confused, and I want you to stick with me on this. He then goes on and says, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. He would plead with people to do this, but see, people won't do this. Now that's something if you don't understand it, you just don't even barely understand the wickedness of people. You look at people as if they're good. It goes on and says, why then should you die, house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to your fellow citizen, the righteousness of a righteous one will not save him. Did you hear that? The righteousness of a righteous one will not save him on the day of his offense. And as far the wickedness of a wicked one, so you can't be saved by righteousness. No matter who you look at and you see how good they were. George Washington, you know, he was just, he was a good guy. Well, he owned slaves. There's always sin. No matter how righteous the righteous person is, there's always sin. You know who you want to look at? Gandhi? You know, you want to look at Abraham Lincoln? You know, who do you want to look at? It doesn't matter. From Adam to, to, to everyone today. Eight billion people in the world. You know, of all of those people in the world, or is it 8.9 billion people? All of those people in the world, you, you, you're going to find righteous people 
as you measure people against people, well, this is no Adolf Hitler. This is a righteous person. But you know what? It's not going to save him. It's not going to save him on the day of judgment. It's not going to save him because there's still sin in his life. And as for the wicked ones, he will not stumble because of it on the day when he turns from his wickedness. The righteous one, his righteousness will not save him on the day of his offense. And as for the wickedness of the wicked one, he will not stumble because of it on the day when he turns from his wickedness. Repentance is good. Only repentance can save a wicked man, and we're all wicked for all of sin to come short of the glory of God. Whereas a righteous one will not be able to live by his righteousness on the day when he commits sin. And that's like every day. So in Ezekiel, it makes it clear that number one, God does not take delight in the destruction of any person. Any person. Adolf Hitler, he doesn't delight in it. He doesn't delight in it. Repentance is the only way of salvation. Let us not be confused about that reality. Because we cannot be righteous in and of ourselves, we need to be clear on the source of our repentance and faith. Did you hear that? Because we cannot be righteous in and of ourselves, we must be clear on the source of our repentance and faith. These are the graces of God in people who by themselves and from the sinfulness of our own wicked hearts cannot, apart from the grace of God, repent. If you don't believe that, you're deceiving yourself. You're being deceived. It doesn't matter whether it was John Wesley taught it or all those who followed him or those who came before. The movement was named by Jacob Arminius, a Dutch Reformed theologian, of the University of Leiden in 1603-09, who became involved in a highly publicized debate with his colleague Francis Gomorus, a rigid Calvinist, concerning the Calvinist interpretation of the divine decrees respecting election and reprobation. Reprobate. Sinners. Wicked sinners. They disagreed with it. It is always good to know the roots. So Dutch... Arminianism was originally articulated in the Remonstrance, as well as it was called in 1610, a theological statement signed by 45 ministers and submitted to the Dutch States General. And this is when religions dominate, had a dominant place in governments. The Synod of Dort, 1618-19, was called by, asserted that, number one, election and condemnation on the day of judgment was conditional by the rational faith or non-faith of each person. This is, this is what they were saying in the remonstrance. This is Arminianism. Okay, This is the source of it. This is what it really is meant to be. No matter what people want to make it into something else, this is it. Election and condemnation on the day of judgment was conditional by the rational faith or non-faith of each person. Two, the atonement, while qualitatively adequate for all humans, was efficacious only for the person of faith. Get that? Only by the person of faith. That's the only one way that it was effective. Calvin said it was effective for those whom God chose. In three of these tenets, unaided by the Holy Spirit, no person is able to respond to God's will. 
unaided by the Holy Spirit, no person is able to respond to God's will. And four, grace is not irresistible. And five, believers are able to resist sin, but are not beyond the possibility of falling from grace. The crux of the remonstrant Arminianism lay in the assertion that human dignity requires an unimpaired freedom of the will. Human dignity requires an unimpaired freedom of the will. So therefore, if people aren't free, they really have no dignity. So, you know, in the third one, unaided by the Holy Spirit, no person is able to respond to God's will. It really undoes the other four tenets. It's, it's always confusing when people are wrong. They contradict themselves. They say things that are, oh, and see, and this is what they meant. Forget about what you think they meant. The four statements make it extremely clear what they meant. That at- atonement was not efficacious. That faith uh, is from a man by reason of his dignity, which means his will is free. That's what they meant. And when you get into deeper arguments on all of this, you really it becomes very clear. But it's stated right here in, in brief. So Dutch, the Dutch remon- remonstrants were condemned by the Synod of Dort and suffered political persecution for a time, but by 1630 they were legally tolerated. Remember, this one that seems bad because they didn't want to make it legal, these are the people who came out of, these are the post-reformers, post-reformers. The the solid teaching of the gospel was a result of God raising men up like Luther and Calvin and Swingley and many others. They all agreed on the gospel that released the church from the whole, whole of the cult that we now know as Roman Catholicism. And it had that hold on people for 900 years. You'd have no Protestantism at all. But when Arminianism came along like this, that turned men into free willists, you know, th- then it, Satan won his battles of again impairing the gospel message. Now, if you don't believe all of that, just do this for yourself. Try to reconcile the tenets that I just quoted. You can look them up. The tenets that I just quoted of Arminianist beliefs, Arminian beliefs, uh, and then try to reconcile them with Romans chapter 6 and verses 5 to 7. And I'm going to read it. Romans chapter 6, verses 5 to 7. Just, this is just, just a few verses. I mean, Romans 5 to Romans 8 all through is going to contradict those tenets severely. But I'm not going to take the time. I'm just going to conclude our message with Romans 5, 6, and 7. Five, chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Now, if you can reconcile this with the remonstrance you know, the, of Arminianism, if you can do that, then what you need to do is, is check and see if your ability to reason theologically is sound. Because if you can reconcile these two, your, your reasoning is not sound. Verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, Certainly we also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him 
in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For the one who has died is freed from sin. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go into the details of what's being said here, but two things are being said. One is identification with Christ, which took place 2,000 years ago, when Christ died for all those for whom he would die. And that's identification. Just as we're in Adam, people were placed in Christ, and it became, at that time, effectual. Actually, in an eternity in the mind and heart of God. And that's always a reality, but that's beyond our comprehension. But in time now, for us who are alive and right now, we, we are placed in this condition where we've died. And if we've died, and if we believe that we died, and if we've been born again, if our souls have been regenerated, we've been given a new heart by an act of God, then we can go from what? From slaves to sin. You see, a slave is not free. This is a basic misunderstanding of what's being said in the Bible. Man is born a slave. Israel was called out. What is it in Exodus chapter 20? And he starts off the commandments and he says, out of the land uh, of bondage, out of the house of slavery, I called you. A slave doesn't have rights. And he certainly doesn't have freedom. I mean, any moron understands that. So when the Bible speaks as it does in Romans 6 and Romans 7, and it, and, and it makes clear that we're being called from one kingdom to another, one is a kingdom of slavery to unrighteousness and sin, to a, slave, to a, a position of, of slaves of righteousness, but free to God, free to do what? What's right. Where we weren't free to do what was right before, we were enslaved to sin. How does how can anyone believe that an Arminian view is biblical? You don't, they don't understand depravity. They don't understand the wickedness of the human heart. They don't understand slavery and sin. We are not born in freedom. We are born in slavery. Now, if you don't get this and you're confused about it right now, I'm not mad at you. I'm certainly not upset or in any way. What I want is for you to be free. Free to reason biblically. And that's real real freedom. Clinging to some position of goodness that's in men. That's, you know, yes, men are created in in the likeness of God. Actually, Calvin said that. Men were created in in the likeness of God. But he also understood the fall. And what that did to men being able to execute righteousness. No matter how many things you do right, unless you're converted, you're a hater of God. And make no mistake, that hatred of God is adequate to send anyone to hell. And two, it is sufficient to make a person a slave Sin creates slaves. It does not create free men. And as slaves, you you can't be free to repent and believe. And so when grace touches a heart, 
A person throws himself on the floor and cries out, is there mercy for me? When grace touches a heart, when the Holy Spirit it regenerates a new heart and a new mind and a, and a new soul and the person becomes alive, now you're free. At that point, you receive Jesus Christ. There, there's no other way because freedom is slavery to righteousness. If you don't understand these things, spend some time in Romans 6. Spend some time in Romans 7. Be extremely careful of 14 through 25. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones on that account and help it, let him balance off. He has two messages on, on Romans uh, 7, 14 to 25. He'll balance off uh, that whole matter to you. And then come around someone who really gets what's going on. That's not going to be easy. Uh, and find out what's going on there. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the book of Jonah. I thank you for the grace that you bestowed on these people's hearts to turn people as wicked and wretched as these people were, the Ninevites were, uh, into godly people. To, to turn a man who is a Pharisee named Saul, who by his own words, inspired by the Holy Spirit of truth, who said, you know, he's an example to all because if God could save him, he could save anybody. Those are paraphrased words, but that's what he, that's what he said. He's the, the chief of sinners. He was the worst as a sinner. He was a hypocrite upon, above all hypocrites. And God, you saved him. If you can save the cruelty of Nineveh, if you can save the hypocrisy of Saul, anyone can be saved. They're saved by the grace of God. And if God speaks to your heart, and if you hear these words, and if you, you have this, this consciousness of sin, and, and if you come to an end of yourself, give your life to Christ. It'll be real. And the, the proof of your salvation won't be what you say. It'll be the deeds that you do. It'll be the way you seek the Word of God. It'll be the way you seek to do what's right. The concern you have for the evilness of your soul, knowing that upon death or being called up to heaven in meeting Christ, you will be made perfect. Just like the souls of all righteous men who are made perfect. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Dear Lord, I pray that you would bless the hearing of your word. Bless your word to the people who hear these things. Allow us to see the grace of God. The grace of God that's poured out in, in our being able to repent of sin and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to follow him as Lord and Savior all of our days. Grant this to all, all my hearers. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.